Let's pray together before we begin. Father, we love you, we worship you, and we praise you for your work in our lives this morning, for your work in Christ. We praise you also that you've given us your word that tells us truth about yourself, about us, about how we can know you. I pray, Lord, this morning that you would uh, make that clear to us. I pray that you, by your spirit, would help us to engage with what you have for us today. May you be lifted up. May the gospel be proclaimed. And may you use that to uh, draw us to yourself. Father, I pray that you would help us to set aside those things that would distract Concerns from before, concerns about after, concerns about our world or what's going on at home. Help us to engage with you for the next few minutes. May you be lifted up and may you do your work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to let you in on a very small secret. There's a uh, conflict in our family. It's, it's a small conflict, but... Um, See, we, we, uh, we love to read and we love stories, and there's disagreement about how soon you should turn to the last chapter, <laughs> how soon you should read about how the book or the story is going to end, right? And some of you know that's a real point of contention. Like, I mean, this is important stuff. And so some of us want to uh, find out about that character. Is that really a good guy or is that a bad guy? Uh, some of us want to find out how this is going to end so that they can, they can uh, feel more comfortable watching it, knowing that they're not risking great emotional damage to themselves or something. I don't know. But then others of us, others of who are in the right, by the way, the, uh, we, we want to let the storyteller tell the story, right? I, I love a good story, and I love when the storyteller is doing an excellent job of building and putting it all together, because then when the end comes the way the storyteller wants it to happen, with the correct anticipation, with all of the misdirections and all of that, then it's wonderful, right? It's a, it's a, a blessed, glorious, wonderful story when that happens and comes together well. And so uh, not everyone sees it my way, but I guess that's okay. You're allowed to be wrong sometimes, so... We're talking in Acts chapter 2 today, and uh, this obviously is not the last page of the Bible, nor is it the last book of the Bible, but it's talking about a conclusion, a massive conclusion of something that comes together that's been developing since the earliest pages of the Bible, right? So this is, we, we kind of need to, to, to get in our minds all of the loose threads that have been out there in the story thus far, and God is the one who's telling the story, and He's doing so with history. And he's got these loose threads and he's got these promises that, that have not been kept. And he's, he's got these, these characters and these things that are going on in history, in reality, that he's not yet tied up. And, and so we kind of need to understand all of that so that when we come to the punchline, when we come to the final chapter, when we come to what we read today, we will understand really what's going on and feel the weight and the force and understand what he's trying to get to. And so in order to do that, of course, we have to review the entire Old Testament, but we'll do it very quickly. But if, if you go back to the beginning of the Old Testament, the very beginning of the Bible, you see that there's creation and, uh, and God speaks and, and he creates all things and he creates all things in a, in a state of, uh, of bliss and, and sinlessness, right? There's no death and it's a great place to be and that lasts all of two chapters. And of course, by chapter three, sin enters the picture, right? And, uh, and so already humanity has chosen to go their own way, rebel against God, do their own thing, follow the lies of the enemy. And you see that, that uh, all of creation is, is instantly cursed in the third chapter of the whole thing. And so we have a problem already. 
And we see God giving a promise, even in that very early chapter of Genesis chapter 3, He's giving a promise already that He's going to resolve this, and there's going to be one who comes who will bring resolution to this problem, this death, this sin that's entered the world, the corruption that is there. There's going to be one who's going to uh, bring an end to that, and He will actually crush the head of the serpent who caused so much havoc in the garden, and He Himself will have His heel bruised, but He's going to crush that serpent's head. And so we have that promise. And of course, as you read through Genesis, you see uh, the development of the story so that Abraham comes on the scene and God comes down and he he speaks to Abraham and he calls Abraham and gives him a promise about what he's going to do. And he's going to uh, give Abraham a a land and a blessing. and He's going to be a blessing to to other people. And, And so he calls him to be his own and says that he will be Abraham's God. And so the course of Genesis goes through the building of uh, uh, Abraham's generations. And you see that uh, pretty soon you have uh, Jacob, whose name is changed to Israel, and he becomes 12 tribes. And that takes us on into the Exodus. And, And so what you see happening, building in the story, is that God is putting together the people and in the nation that that is going to be the deliverer, the the one who's going to produce the deliverer, as it were, through whom the deliverer will come. And so you have the giving of the law. So you have the organizing of the entire structure, the ways to worship, things that are true about God and how to worship Him. And He's putting this all together. He gives them a land. They go into the land. They set up a kingdom. And it it looks really great. And and then their their greatest king, David, is not the the greatest king. And he ends up not being the one who's going to be the promised deliverer, though he looks like a good option, and yet he blows it again and again. And, and, and they begin to understand that, no, we have a problem here. It's not going to be achieved by even someone as great as David, who's going to be our deliverer. And so they begin to understand that this promise that was given back in Genesis 3 actually refers to someone coming in the future, a Messiah who would come and bring deliverance, and, and he would be the perfect representation of the people. He would be the, the fulfillment of that promise to Abraham, and he would be the one who is perfectly obedient to God, who is that righteous servant, that righteous king, the holy one, who would come and he would deliver his people. And so that takes us all the way through the Old Testament. That wasn't too painful, was it? It was a pretty pretty high overview, but that's the story that's being built. That's the history that God is putting together. And then we, we turn to the page to the New Testament and we start reading in Matthew. We get to the Gospels and we learn about Jesus and we see that he's righteous and we see that he does miracles and he heals people and he's fulfilling all of these promises from the Old Testament about, about this Messiah. And then, of course, it concludes with his, uh, his crucifixion and then he's, he's buried and then he's raised, right? And then he ascends to the Father. But what does this all mean? What does it all mean? How is that uh, an appropriate end to the story? How is that a tying up of all the pieces? And how does that that, uh, uh, come to us? How does that speak to us in our situation? How does that solve the problem? What does it all mean? And of course, we uh, come to Acts chapter 2 and we see that the Spirit has been poured out and we see that the uh, people are speaking in tongues uh, as evidence of God's presence in a new and magnificent and wonderful way, an end times kind of way, a fulfillment kind of way. They see tongues as a fire on people's heads. There's the sound of uh, the noise of, of wind shaking the building they're in, and people are seeing this stuff go on, and they're wondering what is going on, right? And so that's how we concluded last week was, was with them asking that question. Some were perplexed and amazed, and they said, what does this mean? And of course, other people scoffed and said, they're just drunk. They're filled with new wine. And so the question is, what does all of this mean? We've seen, we've seen the events, the miraculous events happening, but what do they mean? And so that brings us to our passage for the day, which is 
which is pretty long, and this is all one sermon. And uh, so I'm going to read the sermon to us. This is Peter's sermon. This starts in Acts chapter 2 and starts in verse 14. We're going to go all the way through 41. And this is all one sermon from Peter. And this is him addressing that issue and that question of what does this mean. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet... And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he, would not, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and, that, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off and everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Amen. So that's Peter's entire sermon in answer to the question, what does this mean? 
You can see that he refers to the Old Testament several times. You can see that, that he refers to the life of Jesus quite a bit and, and, uh, and makes his, his statement about what this all means. And so uh, he starts off, of course, by uh, quoting from the Old Testament there, a passage in Joel, by talking about the Spirit being poured out. That this is obvious. It's evident by the things that are going on. This is the pouring out of the Spirit. And so he reads that great prophecy there by Joel that you can turn and read in your, in your Old Testament, Joel chapter 2, and uh, goes through there and talks about how uh, the Spirit is now poured out on all people. That whereas in the Old Testament, the Spirit was for some and sometimes. Maybe a, a prophet, the Spirit would come upon a prophet and he would speak and he would prophesy. But that was not always and it wasn't all people. And maybe the Spirit would come upon a king for a particular ruling or a particular act or in battle or something like that. But it wasn't always and it wasn't for all people. And, and uh, it was usually for those kings and for priests and prophets and people like that. And here we have the pouring out of the Spirit on all kinds. There is no distinction. All of the redeemed now have the, the Spirit poured out upon them. There's no distinction based upon sex. All right? It's both sons and daughters. It's not just those men who are in leadership. It is sons and daughters who receive the gift of the Spirit, the pouring out of the Spirit. There's no distinction based upon age, young or old. The Spirit is poured out on them. And so you, you have what is called the democratization of the Spirit. It wasn't just for a particular class or a particular group, but there's no distinction based on sex, there's no distinction based on age, and there's no distinction even based on class. Your servants uh, will receive the Spirit also, just like you. So all the redeemed are the recipients of the Spirit poured out. So we see that the barriers that used to be there, those barriers are now crossed. And so the Spirit is poured out broadly and upon all the redeemed, not just a particular group. And so we have barriers crossed. We also have evidences given, right? The day of the Lord is uh, accompanied by increased miraculous activity as seen in Jesus' own ministry, right? If you read through the Old Testament, you can see that there are periods or pockets of time when, when there's great miraculous activity and other times where it seems like there's none. And then you get to the ministry and life of Jesus and you see that there is a great deal of evidence given that the Spirit is at work. And so you have the Holy Spirit doing all kinds of things through Jesus, healing people, raising them from the dead, providing food for people, all kinds of things. He walks on water, etc. And so you have these evidences given. And we see that, that right there, he was uh, in verse 22... Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. And so you have evidence of God at work in the person of Jesus. And this, this wasn't a secret and it wasn't something that only his followers thought. Even his enemies recognized he did miracles. Of course, they assigned those miracles to the power of the dark one, the enemy. But they did not deny that he did miracles because it was too evident. Everyone could see it. Everyone could see that God was at work doing these, doing these things in, uh, in Jesus. And so the, that evidence is given before all. And now uh, you see that actually through the book of Acts, you're going to see that similar kind of evidences will be given. There will be great miracles and great things that are done, what I've called fireworks, throughout the rest of the book of Acts. But he says also <clears throat> in his prophecy, he says, not only in the last days uh, will God pour out His Spirit on all flesh and sons and daughters prophesying and all that, but He says in, uh, in verse 19, He says, I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, and the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Right? And so you're going to have large, massively visible things that are going to happen where there's going to be a demonstration of God's power in huge and visible ways. 
And when you read your Old Testament, you'll see phrases like this. And you'll see that in Jewish apocalyptic understanding, this is, this is an evidence of the presence of God working in large ways, uh, wonderful ways that God is at work. Right, and some of these are some of these we can kind of point to and see that the wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. But, okay, you can kind of explain those, but what about the sun being turned to darkness and the moon to blood? Well, you you remember, of course, in uh, Luke chapter 23 during Jesus' crucifixion, what happened to the sun? Well, it was darkened, and for about three hours it it went dark. And so maybe this is a reference to that. Maybe this is a reference to those events that happen in that context. But uh, maybe it's also figurative language talking about things that God is going to do where he's going to show his presence in powerful and wonderful ways. This is a discussion of really the coming of the day of the Lord. That in a way it has begun, but it's not consummated. We're not seeing it finally concluded yet, but we're seeing that it has begun. The day of the Lord is a picture of, of what's going to happen in the end, how God is going to bring both salvation for His people while bringing judgment upon sin. You see that both of those uh, are tied up in what it means for the day of the Lord to come. And so right here, can you, can you imagine, can you picture and think about how judgment has already been poured out? Well, of course, judgment for you and for me who are in Christ, judgment has been poured out on Christ. And so he, he begins to pour it out in that sense. And, of course, salvation comes to us as well. And that, that time of, of, uh, of Christ being raised from the dead and, and, and him being ascended to the Father and having the position that he has is the beginning of the day of the Lord. It's, it's starting. And in some senses we see already fulfillment of this as in the pouring out of the Spirit. That's evidence that we're in that time. But there will also come a time when it's the final conclusion and consummation of the whole thing, when judgment will happen on the earth, when Jesus will come back physically and he will rule and he will judge on this earth. And that will be the end of all things on this earth. And so uh, you see that the day of the Lord has begun, but it's not, it's not been concluded. Certain aspects of it are here and certain aspects of it are still remaining. But uh, you see that Jesus, as a result of this, or in causing all of this, he has ascended to the Father, and he has brought about this that they see in their midst. And so this is all from the prophecy there that, uh, that, that Peter quotes from Joel chapter 2. What, what's fascinating to me is at the end there, look at verse 21, Acts chapter 2 and 21, It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Who is saved? Who is saved? Well, it's those who will call upon the name of the Lord. It's everyone, by the way, who will call upon the name of the Lord. It's not just a particular group. It's not just a, uh, a particular class or, uh, or division of people or something like that. But it's, uh, it's anyone who will call upon the name of the Lord. And in the Hebrew there, the name of the Lord is Yahweh. And we just covered Exodus about a year ago, and we talked quite a bit about Yahweh, how he introduced himself. God introduces himself as Yahweh. And we, we looked at uh, Exodus chapter 3, and, and really we looked at all of Exodus and saw how God presents himself to be, that he is the Lord of all things, and, and that's God. And that's how they came to know him. When Moses asked, what shall I tell him your name is? He said, tell him that my name is Yahweh. This is me. And so here you have at the conclusion of our passage from Joel chapter 2, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Right? So you're going to file that in your memory that, that those are the ones who will be saved. We have 
Jesus coming on the scene and, uh, and, and then he has left the scene and the coming of the Spirit indicates that the day of the Lord is upon us. It's beginning. It's happening even now. It's in their midst. And so uh, who is going to be saved in the midst of such judgment? It's the one who calls upon the name of the Lord, the one who calls upon the name of Yahweh. He's going to bring judgment and he's going to bring salvation. It's Yahweh. And so uh, the answer to the question, Peter's answer to the question, what does this mean, is this right here. He says the signs that the people are seeing and the miraculous sounds that they're hearing, they all point to the prophesied outpouring of the Holy Spirit on all flesh, that the day of the Lord has begun, that it's here, that those things prophesied of, they're arriving right now. It's all wrapped up in Christ and you're seeing it presented right here. And so that's his, that's his explanation of what it means that, uh, that all of these things, the tongues and all that is happening. And so you have, you have uh, truths about Jesus, and he's begun to explain the pouring out of the Spirit. Now here's where I was surprised as I was studying this. Because we're in Acts chapter 2, and you've read Acts chapter 2 before, and you know that it's about the coming of the Holy Spirit. You know that it's about the, the tongues and the wonderful things that, that are going on and things that are going to happen, the miracles. Here's what surprised me, and maybe this will surprise you, about Peter's sermon. Because what was Peter asked? What does this mean? And my knee-jerk reaction was, this is about the Holy Spirit. That's not Peter's answer. Peter says, this is about the Holy Spirit pointing beyond him. This is really about Christ. This is pointing to Jesus himself. And so the rest of his argument, the rest of his sermon is building on who is this Jesus and how does he relate to these events that we have pouring out in, uh, in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. And so he's going to make his argument about really who Jesus is. And first of all, he's the Messiah resurrected, right? The next few verses talk about the uh, resurrection of the Messiah. First of all, he's attested by God, right? Jesus of Nazareth verse 22, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. This is, this is evidence of Jesus being something special, more than something special. If even his enemies couldn't deny the uh, miracles that he had done, there's something special going on here. And so he was attested by God. And so God is showing himself in Jesus by these works, by these wonders, these miracles that he is doing. So he was attested by God. God had given testimony already of who this is. And he was someone very, very special. But that's not all. He's also crucified by man. So you have him attested by God and you have him crucified by man because his enemies stood against him, right? The very people, remember he came to serve them. He came to give his life for them. And what did those people that he came to do that for end up doing to him? Well, they turned him over and they had him crucified. And so he's, uh, he's crucified by man. Verse 23 there is, is a, a powerful, powerful verse. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. When we think about that, that brings together two massive questions that we have in our lives. Who's responsible? Who's responsible for the death of Jesus? Well, he starts off by saying that it was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This was God in, God's intention. So in that sense, God is responsible. This isn't, this isn't plan B. 
Or this isn't God playing catch-up and trying to do the best with the opportunities that we've left him, with the choices that we've made. This is his plan, his definite plan and foreknowledge. And so who's, who's responsible for the death of Jesus? Whose idea was it? Who's behind it? Whose intention was it? Well, it was God's intention. But that's not where the verse stops. This Jesus, verse 23, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This is the intersection of that massive question of who's responsible. Because we just said God's responsible because that's how Peter starts off. It was God's idea. It was God's plan. It was his definite plan. This was what God intended. And yet you killed him by the hands of lawless men. So did they intend to kill him? Yes. Was it their plan? Yes. Was it their intention? Yes. Did they do what they want? Yes. And so you have the two intersecting right here where you have the question who's responsible is easier to ask than it is to answer because God's responsible and man's responsible. But if you think about this, this helps us answer this question when it comes up a lot in the Bible. What did God intend that for? What was the purpose of his plan? What was the desired outcome of God's plan when he definitely planned and foreknew the events of Jesus' crucifixion? What was his plan? Your salvation. And so his plan for the the greatest evil that has ever been done, the crucifixion of the Son of Man, God's plan for that was good. And we can all praise God for it because it results in our salvation. But now let's look at the other side because God wasn't the only one who intended it. Man intended it as well. And what was man's intention in this? Were they trying to bring about a good? Well, a good as they saw it. A good for themselves. A good to get rid of an enemy, to get rid of someone who was stirring the pot, who was confusing people and leading people astray and all of that. They had an evil intention. They wanted him to die. Their concern was not your salvation. Their concern was elsewhere. And so the greatest evil that's ever been committed, you see man's intent in it was evil. They wanted him dead no matter what. No matter the fact that he was innocent. No matter the fact that he was greatly loved and all the miracles that he had done and all this attestation from God, they wanted him out of the picture. And so they killed him. And at the same time, God intended those same circumstances, those same events, they were according to his definite plan and foreknowledge, and he had a glorious outcome for the same exact events. And you and I benefit from that, that we get to be in Christ. We get to have peace with God because of those same events. And so verse 23, I think, is an extremely powerful verse when I think about why do bad things happen to good people, which is a goofy question. Why do bad things happen to good people? Because biblically speaking, there are really no ultimately good people. And so the question might be better, why do good things happen to bad people? And this gets right to the heart of it. God is at work to accomplish something good. Could the disciples see what good was going to come out of their Lord hanging on a cross? Of Judas betraying him and turning him in? Could they, could they see that? Apparently not because they headed for the hills. Peter even so bad that he would deny his Lord actively. And yet God brought that about. And that gives me courage in the midst of circumstances that may be very difficult. That I don't know, I can't see how God might bring wonderful things out of a terrible situation. I cannot see that. I do not understand it. But I see the worst terrible situation in the history of the earth. 
the history of humanity, and God brought, it about, brought about through it the greatest blessing that any of us has ever known, the greatest blessing in all of creation from the same event. So I find great courage. I find comfort from the sovereignty of God in situations like that. God's not picking up the pieces after the mess we've made. He's at work actively to accomplish his good purposes in the midst of that. And so the sovereignty of God gives us hope in a world that seems out of control and hopeless. So he's attested by God. He's also crucified by man. And he's raised in accordance with with prophecy. Jesus wasn't about to stay dead. Of course, he was killed and he was actually dead and he was, he was really put in the grave and, and, uh, and he was actually dead, but, uh, but he wasn't going to stay that way. David had written long before in Psalm 16 talking about the comfort of God's presence. And in his talking about the comfort of God's presence, he, we read what we have there in verse 25. I saw the Lord always before me, for he's at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. For you have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And so we see from those verses there that David is reflecting back on his own life and he's thinking about the comfort that he draws from God's presence. And being a prophet, he ended up speaking beyond himself to things that weren't actually true of him. They were going to be true of one to come, the son of David. Jesus himself. And so they're going to be true of him. And so we have what Peter says there, brothers, I may say to you with confidence that about the patriarch David, that he both died and he was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. The point being, he actually was in a sense abandoned to Hades or Sheol, the place of the dead, meaning David did die and he remained dead. And if you want to see that his flesh saw corruption, you can go look in the tomb. You can go look at his grave because it's still here and we can point you to it. And so you can go see. And so Peter looks at that and says, obviously, <clears throat> the, Lord was, the Lord was really in mind in, in David's prophecy where he was talking about the comfort of God and then he began to prophesy beyond himself to a comfort that's even greater, a comfort that was going to be true of the Messiah. And that's that he would be raised, that he would not see corruption. And this points to ultimately the Messiah being therefore a prophet, verse 30. And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. And so he says that prophecy was beyond David, was actually about the Messiah, the Christ. And he says David died. David's body saw corruption in the grave. And so the one that we have who was actually raised from the dead, whose body did not see corruption. He's the one who's the Christ. And so he begins, he, he begins to build his argument and set the table for the conclusion that he's going to make. And so he says of Jesus that uh, he is the Messiah resurrected. And he's going to draw this all conclusion, but he's saying David prophesied about the Messiah, that he would not stay dead, nor would his body see corruption. So he's, he's the Messiah Um, And he's going to draw conclusions there. But then he moves on and he starts talking about the Lord. He's made his case about the Christ, the Messiah. And he's going to make his case about the Lord. And so he talks about the ascended Lord, that these are all signs that Jesus is the Lord spoken of in the Old Testament, right? He says, we are witnesses of his resurrection. He says, this Jesus, right? David prophesied 
But that prophecy didn't come true of David because he died, stayed in the grave, and his body saw corruption. But Jesus was raised from the dead. And we are all witnesses of that, Peter says. Peter, standing up there with the eleven, by the way, who part of their job description was that they have been witnesses of the resurrection. And they stand and they say, we all saw it. We all know it. We had the same experience. We know that this Jesus was raised from the dead. And so this points to Jesus being that Lord who was raised from the dead. So they were witnesses of the resurrection. They were also witnesses of the ascension. They had seen him ascend and go back to the Father. And so you see that they they saw him rise from the dead. They also saw him ascend. And that has to do with uh, this verse that he's going to quote here from David, verse 34. He says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is talking about the ascension. This is talking about the Lord speaking to David's Lord about the ascension. And so, so David is making the case, and Peter here is making the case, as Jesus did many times, that David, in prophesying this, was saying I, that there's the Lord and then my Lord sitting at his right hand. He begins to talk about God in terms of not just God is one, but that there's somehow personality within the Godhead, that there's this, this one who is David's Lord is something special. He's special enough to be seated at God's right hand. That's not a, a right that's given to just anyone. There's something very special about him. And David calls him my Lord. And so there's something very powerful there. And we see that, that the, the uh, uh, apostles were also witnesses of his ascension. And everyone here is witnesses of the Holy Spirit. They, they were all seeing and hearing. And sp- there was very visible and audible evidence that the Holy Spirit was at work right now. And he says, you're all witnesses of this. You've, you see these things that are going on. You can, you can tell what is happening. You can, you can hear and you can see, right? So we're all witnesses. He says, unfortunately, they were also witnesses against their Messiah Lord. The conclusion that he comes to there in verse 36 is powerful. He says, after making all this argument, he says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This one that you've expected, this one who has prophesied all the way back from Genesis chapter 3, the one who was to come and who was to deliver you, the hope of the Jews, the Messiah, he's come. This David, this this Lord whom David spoke of, who sat at the Lord's right hand, who's who's someone very special. He's he's divine and yet he's somehow distinct from the Father. This one, yeah, he's come also and you stood against him. Your hope came into your midst and you crucified him. So they were witnesses against their Lord, their Messiah. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Your hope came and you did worse than deny that hope. You put him to death. And that's the conclusion of Peter's sermon. We're not done with our passage for the day, but that's when he's done. Can you imagine the weight that they felt? Do you feel that same weight? The weight of being one of those responsible for having put the hope of humanity to death. He came in our midst and we killed him. Can you imagine what that would have left them with? And so, of course, we have their response. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. 
as they should have been. Because we can think about it and we sort of think, yeah, I've done sin and that put Jesus on the cross. True. That's true. But for them, these were the people in Jerusalem who may very well have been among the crowds shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Yeah, give us Barabbas. Yeah, we'll take the murderer, let him go free and crucify him. Many of these may have been those exact same people. And so they weren't imagining, they were remembering from just a few weeks past when they were shouting for his death. And so they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? I love that question because it's gone beyond the initial question, which was, what does this mean? Well, that's an important question. What does this mean? But it's sort of philosophical and you can kind of take or leave the answer and we could, we could sit over coffee and we could debate what it really means and come away completely unchanged. But these people, when they hear it and they come away, they are cut to the heart. They feel a conviction. And that's your first point of application is the conviction that they feel. Because hope came and they killed him. And now they ask the real question. Brothers, what shall we do? And so that spurs a response from Peter. Peter continues his sermon. Can you imagine if he had left it there? I mean, what a, what a very tough way to conclude a message. This Jesus whom you crucified. And then that would be the end of the message. But they responded. They were cut to the heart. And they, were, they experienced conviction. And Peter says to him, first of all, he talks about repentance. This is your second point of application. He talks about repentance. He says, verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He says, repent. He says, you have had a particular relationship with the Messiah. That is, you have stood directly against him. You have gone directly against him. You have acted directly against him. You need to repent. That is, you need to change, turn about the way you think about and act towards your behavior towards and your relationship with the Messiah. You need to make that change. You need to repent and turn from the shouting of put him to death, crucify him, crucify him of just a few weeks ago. You need to repent of that. You even need to repent of the, what, what does this mean, sort of uh, question, and you need to move into a right relationship with him where you would repent. And so that's what Peter says they need to do. They need to respond with repentance. Secondly, they, uh, thirdly, they need to respond with baptism. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. That idea of baptism is, is going to come up several times in the book of Acts. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on it this morning, but I will, uh, I will narrow down what it says um, uh, just very briefly that, that when, when the book of Acts talks about conversion, going from being an enemy of God to being one of His children, that act of responding to Christ, very often baptism is mentioned in there. It's a, it's a key part of it, but it's not always mentioned. It accompanies conversion, but it is not always a part of conversion. And even the reception of the Holy Spirit later on, we will see that sometimes uh, it's very specifically and explicitly said that so-and-so received the Holy Spirit and they got baptized later. So baptism does not bring about regeneration. 
nor does baptism bring about the presence of the Holy Spirit. Baptism is an, is an act that we do in response of faith to God. That we are expressing our repentance and our faith. That's shown, by the way, in the fact that we are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Meaning we are saying, I am Jesus' slave. I am his servant. He is my Lord. You're declaring him. That's an act of faith. And that's part of what baptism is. And so he says here that what part of your response needs to be baptism. And then part of the result will be the reception of the Holy Spirit. The conversation started by talking about all these things that were seen that were indicators of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And he concludes the whole thing by saying, after you have, after you have uh, um, turned, you have repented, you have trusted Christ, be baptized, and you will receive the Holy Spirit also. And so he puts bookends on his message. And this is a, this is a powerful message for us because the conviction that they felt, I can't even imagine. When I, when I first heard the gospel, I remember the conviction that began to develop about my own sin. And it was a real conviction. And for these people, they were remembering and not imagining. And they were not responding just to, to something deep down. They were responding to what they had done themselves against the Messiah. And so that's the message for us. We talked about the whole course of history, salvation history from from Genesis on, and we see how God has made promises that He is going to bring certain blessings. He's going to bring salvation to man. He's going to, he's going to send His Messiah. And we see everywhere evidence that that is Jesus. And then we see that He's killed, and it seems like all hope is lost, but He's raised from the dead. And now, in expression of Jesus sitting down at God's right hand, He gets to pour out this Holy Spirit upon us and we see evidence of him being seated on the throne. He has accomplished all of his purposes and all these promises that were made about him in the Old Testament have come to fruition in him and now he takes that blessing of being the one who is righteous before God, of being the one who's rightly related to God and he offers that to us. That's the blessing that's offered to us of being in Christ, being considered by God to be a righteous one because we are in Christ. That's the offer he makes to us. That's the, it's actually a command here. He says, repent. Repent and be baptized. And so that's what I want to leave us with this morning is that that mighty work of God that he has summed up in Christ. And I, I started off by saying it seems like this message should be about the Holy Spirit. And he talks about the Spirit in the beginning and he talks about the Spirit in the end. But the whole point is Christ and the and he is seated even now at God's right hand. He is Lord of all things. He, he, he's able to send the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, to whom he chooses. That's a degree of authority that we can't imagine. And that's Jesus, our Messiah. And he's the one who calls you to repentance even now. Maybe, maybe you have lived your life in opposition to him. Maybe you would have been one standing in the street shouting crucify him maybe you've you've rebuffed him in your own life you've not really wanted anything to do with him or you would kind of take the benefits of having christ but you don't really want all of him you certainly don't want him to be your lord because that gets uncomfortable if that's you i pray that you feel this conviction that you likewise would be cut to the heart because of your sin and that you would respond in repentance and faith that you would respond by trusting christ Expressing that in baptism. And then you will be included within 
Christ. You will be included within those who are the blessed because they are in Christ. The ones who have peace with God through Jesus our Lord. So that's my prayer for you, that you would be that one. But for the rest of us, those who are in Christ, we are only in Christ because of this completed work that He's done. And this is how we stand before Him, not, not by anything of our own, not by, but by the work of Christ. We stand before Him. And how encouraging it is that not only do we stand there apart from our own works, but because of the work of Christ, we stand there in, his, in, in, in God's eyes being the righteous ones. Paul says in Ephesians that we are even seated at the right hand uh, of God in the heavenly places, even now. What, what blessing we have. H- how dare we walk around this world in this life being beat up because tough things happen. Tough things happen, I know. And some of you experienced far tougher things than I can imagine. But this is such a short time. This world is such a brief place. This life is, is passing. And there is glory far, far greater to, to be had in the future. There's even now in the midst of, of the difficulty, in the midst of the pain, in Christ you have peace with God. Can there be anything better? Can there be any better place to be? Would you rather replace that with, with riches and healthy relationships and healthy body? I would not. I would not. Let's pray. Father, I praise you for your work on our behalf. I praise you for all that you have done throughout all the history of the Old Testament that you have sent your Messiah. You've, done, uh, you've communicated who you are. You've taught us who you are. And then you, you sent your Son to demonstrate before us the one who is the image of the invisible God to show us who you are. I praise you for Jesus. I praise you that he went to the cross not as a martyr, not as one who was taken against his will, but as one who went there willingly for the joy set before him to endure that suffering. I thank you that he took my place on the cross, bearing the wrath of God. I thank you that he bore it to the, to the fullest, that he actually died in my place so that I don't have to, and that you raised him from the dead, and you brought him back to yourself, and then he pours out his spirit upon us to include us, to baptize us into the body of Christ that we might be those who are the accepted of God because of what Christ has done. I praise you and I thank you for this great salvation. I praise you and thank you for this gospel. Father, I pray that you would help us to think in these terms. When we think about Pentecost and as we go through our studies in the coming months and as we read our Bibles throughout the week, I pray that we would be struck by the magnificent work of Christ on our behalf and the position, the, the great blessing that we have because we are in Christ. Father, I thank you for the Holy Spirit who has poured out within us, who comforts us, leads us, convicts us, chastises us at times. Your Holy Spirit who lives within us brings healing at times. We have evidence within us that Jesus has completed His work and is seated. He's not standing up working anymore. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. Father, I thank You for this great salvation. I praise You in Jesus' name. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever and ever. 
in Jesus' name. Amen.